Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Which composer and amateur painter was known to have such a bad temper that in his autobiography, Hector Berlioz told a story of the time this composer got so mad that he chased him around a library? Find out who on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. You're invited to the Guild's 88th Annual Luncheon, Shaping Stars, a celebration of the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program, occurring at 11.45 a.m. on November 10th and held at Cipriani 42nd Street. This event will be our first in-person luncheon in three years. Celebrate the impact of the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program with speeches and live performances from alumni including Stephanie Blythe, Michelle Bradley, and Sandra Rabinovsky, and current young artist Jonah Hoskins. More info and tickets at www.metguild.org backslash luncheon 2022 or by phone at 212-769-7009. Don't miss this opportunity to celebrate the future of opera. Give up? It was none other than composer Luigi Carabini, Regarded by Beethoven as the greatest composer of his generation, while also revered by Rossini and Chopin, Carabini was a child prodigy who composed several works by the time he was 13, before turning his sights to the operatic stage. Perhaps his most famous work, Medea, opened the 2022-23 Met Opera season, marking the company premiere of the opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and today we welcome lecturer and radio personality Nemet Habashi as she explores the life and times of Carabini and his most famous opera, Medea. The ultimate irony is that Luigi Carabini's opera about possibly the very worst character in all of Greek mythology is labeled, are you ready? an opera comique. <laughs> By the time Luigi Cherubini's Medea opened in Paris, the French had lived through the very, very worst of their, friend, of their revolution. It was the reign of terror presided over by people like Robespierre and the Jacobin faction. 
their appetite for bloodletting was still very much alive. In this climate, an opera about a woman who avenges the wrong done her by her man by killing their children was not an impossibly repugnant subject to treat operatically. There was definitely a market for truly over-the-top melodrama that suited the times. No more bergerettes, those wonderful tableaus where shepherds and shepherdesses frolicked around in bucolic splendor. The revolution that had devoured its own citizenry, using Mr. Guillotine's new killing machine, set up in every French town of any size, had desensitized the French. Luigi Carubini, an Italian composer, was able to bring an opera to the French that could express the national trauma musically, drawing on Greek mythology, which covers the spectrum of human emotions. And in so doing, he added perhaps the greatest star vehicle to the operatic repertoire. This killer of a role gets performed rarely because very few can undertake it. Kudos to Sandra Radvanovsky. Radvanovsky has sung the truly difficult soprano roles in the past. Perhaps you remember the trilogy of Donizetti operas about the queens. Roberto Devereux, which of course is about Elizabeth Tudor. Maria Stuarda and Anne Boleyn or Anna Bolena. She joins only a handful of singers in recent years who have sung Medea. Among them Eileen Farrell, Montserrat Caballé. Sylvia Sass, Marisa Galvani, and uh, Marilyn Niska, both of the New York City Opera, a place that I think many of us have known and loved, even though we are in the confines of the Metropolitan Opera, Dame Gwyneth Jones, Leonie Rizenek, and the greatest interpreter of all, who is still talked of in reverent tones, Maria Callas. Sandra Radvanovsky is aware of the legacy and has been quoted as saying that it is an honor to be following in Kalas's footsteps. And she has also said that this is the most special opera of her career. Why and how, you might well ask, does an Italian composer wind up in France during one of the worst historical periods in history to compose Italian operas for a French audience? You'd think he'd stay safely in his native Florence and uh, distance himself from France but he bound up spending almost his entire life in France, speaking, by the way, very bad French to the very end. <laughs> he was quite notorious for that, actually. His grammar was appalling. It was Cherubini's father, a harpsichordist at the Pergola Theatre in Florence, who gave his son a musical education. And Cherubini, on his own, found an old violin and taught himself to play it something that would save his life one day. The young Cherubini showed sufficient talent that he received a stipend from the Duke of Tuscany, one Leopold, to continue his studies with a celebrated teacher of the day whose name was Sarti. As was the custom, Cherubini followed his teacher and mentor all over Europe. They wound up in Bologna, they wound up in Milan together, and during this time, the young Cherubini was composing a good deal of church music and pièces d'occasion, pieces for certain occasions. And sometimes he filled in for his master because he was very, very talented and everybody knew it from way early on. But it was opera that made you famous in those days. There was a hunger 
for hearing ultimately the best of all instruments, I think some of us would agree, the human voice. Cherubini was soon into the business of assuaging the thirst for opera, but his first opera, which he composed at the age of 19, was a great big flop. It was called Il Quinto Fabio. He had studied his craft so long and hard that his audience didn't grasp his more nuanced music. It was too complicated for the general populace. Already the traits that would mark his particular musical voice were in place. Interrupted phrases, pauses, chord progressions that seemed to jar everybody, contrasts and fluctuating tempos. Mendelssohn once compared Cherubini's music to an extinct volcano throwing out occasional sparks and flashes. <laughs> this is the overture to Medea. After several years of apprenticeship to Sarti, the two split up. Sarti went to Russia and Cherubini went off to the Haymarket Theatre in London. It has been 25 years since Handelian opera had held sway in London and London was ready once again to host operas. Their passion for oratorio in the days of Handel were over and Cherubini became part of the Prince of Wales set and swanned around London for a while. This was the Prince of Wales who would reign as George IV. He eventually replaced his ailing father, George III. George IV was the English king who favoured a flamboyant and extravagant lifestyle, spent a tremendous amount of money, ran up debts, and had to assume the duties of king from 1788, when his father first showed signs of being very ill. He officially became Prince Regent for 11 years. George IV and his set were devoted to their many entertainments, opera being one of them. Cherubini's Finta Principessa was a very successful opera buffa that appealed to the Londoners of the day. A more serious opera, Giulio Sabino, according to Charles Burney, the music chronicler of the day, the opera was murdered in its birth for want of the necessary support of capital singers in the principal parts. In other words, they stank. Somewhere in this period, Cherubini came to know Giovanni Battista Viotti, who was taking Paris and London by storm. The two became good friends and even lived together for a while. The life of musicians is often itinerant, and Viotti and Cherubini went on to France together, where Viotti introduced Luigi Cherubini to Paris society. Cherubini found favor with no less than Queen Marie Antoinette. The Queen was devoted to music and was the patron of several music organizations, but she particularly favored the operas of Christoph Willibald Gluck, which were being performed regularly in Paris. And she famously used to go from Versailles, traveling the 40 minutes or so to get into Paris in order to hear the music of Gluck. This earned her admo admonishing letters from her mother, the Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, Marie Antoinette was supposed to stay home at Versailles and do her wifely duty with her kindly, if somewhat colourless husband, Louis XVI. 
The French queen took a liking to the dapper, attractive Italian composer of elegant bearing. With her imprimatur and the help of her perfumer and coiffeur, one Leonard Alexis Autier, Cherubini and Viotti founded a new Italian opera house in Paris. The queen saw to it that the new opera house was housed in the Tuileries, which was part of the Louvre, but that section burned down during one of France's later revolutions. The palace, which had housed many kings of France, was quite beautiful, one gathers. The titular director of the new venue was the king's brother, Louis Stanislas Javier the Comte de Provence, known as Monsieur. And the new enterprise was known as the Théâtre de Monsieur. The Théâtre de Monsieur did well. Cherubini supplying the music and conducting, and it attracted the likes of Mesdames de Polignac, Madame d'Etiol, Madame de Richelieu, all members of the nobility who were going to have a major life change. The stratification of French society, of course, was appalling. The first estate was made up of 100,000 members of the clergy. The second consisted of the 400,000 members of the nobility the untaxed who lived off the peasants, who were mercilessly taxed. The first and second estates lived lives of elegance and decadence and excess, while 96% of France, 22 million, starved. Marie Antoinette probably never made that idiotic statement about let them eat cake, but history has stuck her with it. The quip is emblematic of the attitude of the aristocracy to the people. It should be noted that the French disliked Marie Antoinette, the foreigner, the outsider, the Austrian. She was known as l'Autrichienne, and it became a slur. They were infuriated by Marie Antoinette's appalling blindness to what was happening around her. She tragically went from one political or social blunder to the next, the scandal of the diamond necklace is but one of them. She allegedly agreed to purchase a very expensive diamond necklace that had been designed for Louis XV's mistress, Madame du Barry. This at the time when France was in a shambles economically. The secret negotiations surrounding the purchase unraveled and Marie Antoinette was shown up as an insensitive spendthrift oblivious to the plight of the French. Whether she was guiltless in the affair or, tragically, she fell into a well-laid trap, her reputation already tarnished was destroyed. And the French have never, by the way, forgotten. When during the Bicentenaire, the Bicentennial in 1989, the Figaro ran a sort of survey. If you had it to do today, would you vote for the beheading of Louis XVI? Would you vote for the beheading of Marie Antoinette? And the French of today came back with the fact that, that they would spare Louis XVI, but behead Marie Antoinette. The politics of the day were clearly headed in a catastrophic direction. The engine of the revolution was oratory. The French have a love of their language for very good reason, and a love of words and rhetoric. They were seduced by one orator or another and that drove the revolution inexorably forward. Rousseau, the author of the Discourse on Inequality and the Social Contract, who is credited 
as one of the authors of the French Revolution, began the trend in the use of language. And then there was Voltaire, who played a part with his biting satire in plays, which earned him a stint in the Bastille and exiled to Geneva for 25 years. And then there was the role of Beaumarchais, the writer of The Marriage of Figaro. So very much smarter was Figaro than his aristocratic boss. But this very speech is accused of being one of the great rabble-rousing speeches that mobilized the French. This is the speech, or a bit of it. <laughs> Noblesse, fortune, un rang, des places, tout cela rend si fier. Qu'avez-vous qu fait pour tant de bien Vous vous êtes donné la peine de naître et rien de plus. Homme assez ordinaire. Nobility, fortune, position. You go to high places. This makes you so proud. What have you done for so many benefices? You took the trouble to be born and nothing more. Otherwise, a rather ordinary man. Whereas, in effect, I have had to use every while to survive. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, Dans le mariage de Figaro, la Révolution française est déjà en action. In the marriage of Figaro, the revolution is already underway. Beaumarchais had been imprisoned for this play by Louis XVI, but he was freed. And the rest is history, probably. Louis XVI lived, had he lived, he'd have regretted it. The revolutionary oratory was extraordinary, and the orators took their cues from one François-Joseph Dalma of the Comédie Française, one of the great actors of all time. He firmly believed that sentiment should override intellect in theater. Method, where are you? The actor must draw on feelings to reach beyond words. He spoke of gesture preceding words as lightning precedes thunder. The result was that orators of the revolution adopted a spontaneous style of delivery. They had many venues in which to practice their craft, clubs, assemblies, committees. Each orator had his specialty. There was Danton who was brilliant at emotional outpourings of passion. He had a big, heavy, expressive face, which served him well. You look at the, the jowls and the facial, and he was brilliant at it. Robespierre, on the other hand, was given to lawyerly argument, and he was a master of suspense. He was known as the incorruptible and upheld the poor and the downtrodden. But he turned tyrannical in his zeal and has come down in history as the most odious of all revolutionaries. He went to a particularly awful death. He'd been shot in the jaw and was nursing his wound when he went to the guillotine. And famously, they ripped off the bandage, and so he died a particularly agonizing death. And then, of course, there was Marat, the famous pamphleteer of the revolution who died a different kind of death. He was killed in his bathtub by Charlotte Corday while he was trying to soak away the discomfort of a skin disease which afflicted him. 
Charlotte Corday favored a less violent interpretation of revolution and acted on her political impulses. She was of the Gironde faction who hated the Jacobins and she made her way into Marat's home and did murder him in his tub. And that murder is depicted in the famous painting of Jacques-Louis David. France seemed to go insane. One new demagogue after another appeared, Danton, Saint-Just, and then they all disappeared to the Place de la Révolution, where Paris's guillotine had been placed. Today, of course, it's the Place de la Concorde, and instead of a guillotine, there's an Egyptian obelisk. Paris must have been a terrible place, no matter who you were. Everyone had reason to be terrified. The oppressed morphed into the oppressor. Denunciations were common. You could get rid of a noisome creditor, or perhaps an unsatisfactory spouse. All you had to do was put a note in a box, and the rest was probably the Committee of Public Safety, presided over by the dreaded Fouquier-Tinville. Trials were so cursory that sometimes there really was no trial at all. It was off to the tumbrils and to the guillotine. The tumbrils, those rather rustic wagons used in agriculture. The guillotine was kept so busy that it frequently had to be relocated to another spot as the earth could no longer absorb the amount of blood that fell from the severed necks of the unfortunate victims. When the king and queen were arrested at Varennes in 1791 as they tried to escape Versailles, the two Italian directors of the opera house, Cherubini and Viotti, changed the name of their Théâtre de Monsieur to the Théâtre Fédo, because it was on the Rue Fédo. As France drowned in its revolution, Cherubini's position became more and more precarious. He was not only tainted by his friendship with Marie Antoinette, but he had married a Frenchwoman of minor nobility, one Anne-Cécile Tourette. They had three children, and by all accounts, it was a happy marriage. The Cherubini somehow managed to survive the revolution by lying low and observing the hideous scene. Madame Cherubini resorted to gallows humor. She once quipped, In the afternoon, people were guillotined, and in the evening, the theatres were full. In this climate, you risked your life if you ventured outside. Cherubini once, once caught in one of those notorious mobs that typified the French Revolution. The only thing that saved Cherubini was that he was able to play revolutionary songs on the violin to pacify the so-called sans-culotte, the French revolutionary peasants who wore trousers instead of breeches and silk stockings, as did the aristocrats. Cherubini played revolutionary songs throughout the day and accompanied a raucous evening banquet and survived. Desperate to atone for his apparent aristocratic sympathies, Cherubini enlisted in the National Guard. Among his duties was taking unfortunate, mostly aristocratic victims to the court and to the guillotine. The horrors he must have seen Entire families, young and old, systematically herded up the steps 
unceremoniously pinioned to the apparatus of the guillotine and killed. The famous Malzerbe, who had defended Louis XVI, was forced to watch as each member of his family, including grandchildren, were killed before he too was finally executed. After his stint in the National Guard and during the worst of the terror, Cherubini disappeared into the country to a farm that had been a monastery. It was called La Chartreuse de Gaillon. There he pursued other interests. There was botany, he studied music, and he turned out revolutionary pieces, republican hymns. This was also true of other composers who survived the revolution. Gossek, Meul, Gretry. We play all of these on WQXR, but not the revolutionary hymns. One does wonder where they are, and of course the Marseillaise is one of them, but that came later. Among the works Cherubini's former, the former protégé of Marie Antoinette composed was an ode to celebrate the anniversary of the death of Louis XVI. Later on, he had occasion to compose a requiem mass for Louis XVI. Anything to survive. Cherubini eventually reappeared on the scene with his operas, one of which was Lodaiska. This opera pits the Poles against the Tartars and is a so-called rescue opera, which earned Cherubini the admiration of Beethoven. Not only did Beethoven refer to Cherubini as the greatest living composer, but he literally copied the rescue opera formula for his very own Fidelio. So we owe a lot to Cherubini, and most people don't know this because Cherubini has pretty much disappeared, except for the opera Medea, which is a pity because there were several operas that seem to have music of great value. Cherubini composed three operas in this time period, in the 1790s, in the shadow of the terror, and all of them ended in calamitous events, mirroring what was going on. His Élise, ou Le Voyageur au Glacier du Mont-Saint-Bernard, Élise, or The Voyager in the glaciers or the mountains of the Saint-Bernard, ended with an avalanche that left the audience quite frozen. And Lodoiska ended in a fire, huge conflagration. And there were real calamities that were going on. There had been an eruption of a volcano quite recently. So people were on edge with a very febrile society. Medea, depending on whether you read Euripides or the French playwright Pierre Corneille, can wind up being consumed by fire or swept up into the heavens in a chariot pulled by dragons. At this time, I have no idea what the Metropolitan Opera has cooked up for us, but something tells me Medea won't be going peacefully into that good night. Because of the times and because of the turbulent nature of his music, Cherubini was dubbed a terrorist musician, and that title was given him by his own librettist, François Benoit Hoffmann. And for the audiences, the opera was a revolutionary experience. Cherubini's music came in bursts of the turbulent sound and stopped and started and crashed periodically. A far cry from the very popular Gluck, for Medea, Cherubini pulled out all the musical stops. He needed a huge story to suit the times, and he found a perfect one in Greek mythology. 
For the ancient Greeks, theatre was a way of life, complete with a patron god, Dionysus, and there were contests for the best play. Each playwright handed in three different plays. There were tragedies by Euripides and Sophocles, comedies of Aristophanes, and there were hundreds of plays. The ones we have are very, very few. One gathers, they're an enormous number of them. A theater festival was opened by a priest and plays offered scenery and dancing and speeches and processions of choruses. The chorus that reflected on the play or story is the precursor of the opera chorus, and it would so evolve, and the narrative and speeches would become the arias. Old myths were told anew with Homer's Iliad and Odyssey arriving, serving as equivalent to the Bible. A wonderful time for the Greeks to bond at the theatre. Cherubini was much inspired by Pierre Corneille's version of the play. Corneille, in turn, was inspired by Seneca, the Roman philosopher. The story of Medea is in good part driven by the fact that Medea is not Greek. She's the outsider, rather like Marie Antoinette. Like Carmen and Violetta and many other opera heroines, they are, for one reason or another, not accepted. Carmen is a gypsy, which makes her suspect. And, after all, after all, Violetta is a woman of ill repute. They are the other, and therefore they are doomed to suffer. Of course, Medea comes with extra baggage. She is a sorceress with musical powers. The opera opens with a somewhat tremulous Glauce being prepared for her marriage to Jason or Giassone in the opera who has abandoned Medea, mother of his children, despite the fact that she helped him win the Golden Fleece against terribly heavy odds. The Fleece, of course, is a kind of Tarnhelm, to borrow from Wagner, an object that protects from all evil. Medea returned with Jason to his home in Corinth, and now Jason is casting her aside. She is her own advocate, furious, pleading for her lover to come back, pleading for justice to be shown her, but to no avail. She's eloquent in her arguments, which the French would appreciate. I am the mother of your two sons, hated and persecuted for you. Crudel, cruel one. Crudel. She says it over and over again. She is alone here, drawn away painfully from all I know. I have given you everything, and what do you do in return? Pity, have mercy. I love you. Return to me. Here is Maria Callas singing the aria De Tuoi Fili, which several times won her 10-minute ovations.
the fluctuation of moods is very evident and was not something people were used to. Medea is banished by Jason's father and she decides on this unspeakably terrible vengeance. She succeeds in first destroying her rival and then killing the two innocent children that she bore her lover. Humanity is no stranger to infanticide for all sorts of reasons. One does think of Toni Morrison's 1988 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Beloved, where a mother kills her children rather than see kills her child rather than see the child enslaved. It's based on a true story. But this infanticide is for a woman's vengeance. That is something altogether other and horrific. Medea's vengeance mirrors the horrors wreaked on the French aristocracy. France was killing her own children. The spontaneous style of the libretto reminds of the spontaneous delivery of the revolutionaries. If the revolution was about political vengeance, Medea's was a woman's vengeance. The first audience in 1797 was watching and hearing Medea's cries of anguish as they were experiencing the fury of a nation that had exploded. And Medea offered the audience a kind of catharsis. They could watch Medea suffer, identify with her, and let her suffer in their stead. Paris did not see a time of peace after the revolution for a long time. Various factions, including the Royalists and the Jacobins, the most virulent of the revolutionaries, all tried to control the government until a directory was established in November of 1795. The directory imposed strict regulations on the populace to try to find stability. Medea opened March 13, 1797, at the Théâtre Fédot, barely three years after Robespierre was guillotined. It was well-produced, well-sung, and very well-received. The latter in good part because of the star of the evening, one Julie Angélique Schillot, a woman of slight stature, possessed of a fine voice playing a formidable figure admirably. She came to Paris from Marseille, and by 1792, at the height of the terror, she established herself as a great interpreter of larger-than-life characters. She was, by all account, a brilliant singing actress, and this poem was written about her. Et toi, jeune Schio, sublime enchanteresse, toi qui reçus du ciel les dents les plus flatteurs, quand tu nous peins m'aider en proie à ces douleurs, les beaux sons de ta voix, de ton jeu la noblesse, force à partager sa fureur vengeresse, en frémit, en admire, by the citizen called Dussossois. And you, young Schio, sublime enchantress, you who receive from the heavens the most flattering gifts, when you paint for us midday, enthralled to her sorrows, the beautiful sounds of your voice, the nobility of your manner, these force us to share Medea's vengeful fury. We tremble, we admire, we feel the tears flow. She appeared to be frail, Skio, gave the impression that she might collapse at any moment, which gave her monster of a character a pitiable appeal. 
It's hard to imagine feeling sorry for Medea, but this actress could do that. She combined strength, courage, fearlessness, tenderness. You couldn't help but take her side against the pitiless Jason. According to a critique of the times, she was in turn touching, impassioned, harrowing, arrogant, wild and timid to agree that baffled description. The singer's admirable talents combined with the overwrought atmosphere and it was an enormous event in its day. Of course, there was Cherubini's music, described as expressive, majestic, and terrible. The sublime is what makes great and truthful eloquence and grandeur. And the French who had the good fortune to witness this great artist saw sublime nobility and grandeur. It must have been a bit like being hit by lightning. One thinks of the great interpreters of Medea as commanding, occupying space, not Madame Schio. Her frailty was sadly very real. She was not a woman of robust health. She died at age 37 of tuberculosis. Other singers who have essayed the role have often been women of stature. Maria Callas was well into her weight loss regimen when she sang this role for the first time in 1953 in Florence at the Maggio Musicale. She eventually lost 62 pounds which gave her an extra range of capability and movement, and this enhanced her legendary acting ability. She far outshone her rival, the extraordinary Renata Tabaldi, who had a magnificent voice, an elegant demeanor, and was fabulous. But Callas was glamorous, flamboyant, idolized, and spectacularly attacked by not only Tabaldi fans, but ordinary people who read about her frequently in magazines, in every language. I remember that the school I attended used to get a magazine called Paris Match to aid our French. Now, happily, there was always a great deal about Maria Callas, which I was more than happy to read. Perhaps it helped the French, I don't know, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. Callas was of the greatest value to any opera house. She was box office gold. She sang Medea during the 50s and 60s in Europe, but she never sang it at the Met, though she was constantly being invited to do so by Rudolf Bing. She did sing Medea in America eventually, in Dallas, Texas. She also sang Medea in Epidaurus in 1961, and here's what Peter Hayworth, a critic of the day, said of that performance. Maria Callas is much nearer to ancient Greece than to the French Revolution. While Cherubini trundles out his cliches, she storms the heights of Euripides. Callas had learned the role of Medea in eight days. She had a reputation for being a very hard worker. According to George Jelinek, my colleague and my friend at WQXR, who wrote one of the definitive biographies of Maria Callas, Callas sounded as if she was born to sing the role of Medea. It was tailor-made for her. Mind you, she had sung sorcerers before, sorceresses before. There was Kundri and there was Armida. One of the greatest performances of Medea was with a young, untried conductor by the name of Leonard Bernstein. What might have been a disastrous combination, it seems, was a dream of excellent collaboration with two huge monstres sacrés sacred monsters, feeding off each other to produce a sensational evening at the opera. 
Kalas was a savage, physically demonstrative Medea. She used a natural ability at gesturing, expression. If you've ever seen the bit of footage that has survived of her second act, Tosca, which is all we've got on video in the opera, it's a heartache that she was born early and missed the whole video craze of our day. Those magnetic eyes and the very volatile personality. She was expert at making coloratura embellishments into meaningful aspects of her characters. And Leonard Bernstein said, after that first performance together, the place went out of its mind. Callas? She was pure electricity. Medea became a staple in the Callas repertoire, yet there were flaws in the voice, and they would increase, we know that. But who cares? As someone said, pointing out the infelicities of Maria Callas's voice is like pointing out that in Leonardo's Last Supper, the knives need polishing. <laughs> we may not have Medea singing, um, <laughs> Maria Callas singing opera on video, but we do have her on film. The Euripides Medea was made into a movie by the Italian director Pierpaolo Pasolini. It's not a wild success, and if you will accept one person's opinion, it's peculiar. <laughs> but it's Callas playing Medea, and it kind of sends chills up your spine. One rather wishes she had a crack at more movies. But she took up a life that was very different, a life with one Aristotle Onassis. She left her career to go sailing the world on the Onassis yacht, the Christina, equipped with gold faucets and several kinds of caviar. But her life took the path of Greek tragedy, of course, Medea's tragedy. Medea lost Jason to Glauce, Callas lost Aristotle Onassis to Jackie Kennedy. Ariana Huffington's points out that Callas sacrificed her voice, her art, and her career for this man. Medea had made it possible for Jason to steal the Golden Fleece by killing her own brother, and she was forced to flee her own land to go to a new country. Callas eventually tired of the excesses of life on the good ship Christina and lost Aristotle Onassis, who forever had to have new excitements, new deals, new adventures, and one-up his nemesis and rival, Stavros Niarchos. Callas suffered dreadfully. And there is a famous tale of her now living very quietly in Paris. Aristotle Onassis under her window begging her to come back to him. Only it was too late. Onassis had suffered his own Greek tragedy. He had lost his son in an airplane crash. And so too, eventually, with Jackie Kennedy, of course. Luigi Cherubini composed his Medea when he was still a young man but the rest of his long life of 81 years would be haunted by the French Revolution and its aftermath. He proved to be the Talleyrand of composers, that is to say, like Talleyrand, Cherubini went into the service of Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon and Josephine spent weekends at Malmaison outside Paris, and there Josephine had established a theatre where the emperor particularly enjoyed the plays of Corneille. The royal family took part in theatricals but there was a place for music. Josephine and Napoleon favored Spontini. His opera La Vestale was a hit, and 
Cherubini could never equal it. Anyway, Cherubini had already damned himself with some infelicitous exchanges with Napoleon. This is allegedly an exchange between Napoleon Bonaparte and Luigi Cherubini. My dear Cherubini, you are certainly an excellent musician, but really your music is so noisy and complicated that I can make nothing of it. Cherubini's response. My dear General, you are certainly an excellent soldier, but in regard to music, you must excuse me if I don't think it necessary to adapt my composing into your comprehension. <laughs> and worse, after a Napoleonic critique, Citizen General, occupy yourself with battles and victories and allow me to treat according to my own talent an art of which you know nothing. Well, that was the end of what might have been a very happy, lucrative friendship. <laughs> Napoleon did appoint Cherubini Director of Music in Vienna in 1805, and Vienna would feature again when Cherubini would be put in charge of all the musical entertainment for all the many countries who participated in the Congress of Vienna. This was the diplomatic conference to bring order to Europe after 23 miserable years of chaotic Napoleonic wars. It was chaired by Metternich, and the major players, of course, were Austria, Britain, France, Russia, and Prussia. Vienna famously went broke trying to keep everyone entertained. They never imagined that the Congress of Vienna would go on from September 1814 all the way to June of 1815. But that wasn't the end of the career of Cherubini. Louis XVIII appointed him music director of the Royal Chapel and named him director of the Paris Conservatory a post he held for 10 years. And that's the only other fact that people remember about Cherubini, was that he ran the conservatory in Paris and he wrote Medea. And it's unfair. He wrote rather fabulous music, the Lodaiska somebody should revive because it is a fascinating opera and a precursor to all the so-called rescue operas. He did also write a treatise, the Cours de Contrepoint et de Fugue, the course in counterpoint and fugue and he called it a grammar of music. Luigi Cherubini is regarded as one of the great men of the day, but had acquired a reputation for being rather ill-tempered. Adolphe Adam, the composer of the Ballet Giselle and the Christmas Carol, O Holy Night, said, his temper was very even because he was always angry. <laughs> I'd like to thank Stuart Holt very, very much for always handling all these elements so ably. And also I'd like to thank Camel Butrus for his electronic wizardry. And my enormous thanks go to Martin Meisel for helping me explore this subject. And thank you all very much for coming. That was Guild lecturer Nemet Habashi discussing the life and times of Karabini and his opera Medea. The production, featuring Sondra Rabinowski, Matthew Polanzani, and Janae Brugger, will be seen live in HD worldwide on October 22nd. For more information, visit metopera.org. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>